This morning we return to the book of Revelation as we're going through an expository study of the book. We're in chapter 12. We have to consider today verses 8 through 17. There's an outline of this chapter on the back of your bulletin. And uh, we are up through verse 7. I'd like to read the whole chapter to begin uh, our study today, that we might pull this all together and see it in its unity and context. This is the third and final interlude in the book. The interludes appear between the series of judgments that are represented by the seven-sealed book, the seven trumpets, and the seven vials. And between the outpouring of those judgments, we have these interludes that give to us further revelation, further information on the events of that era and that time and uh, the background to these judgments. They're further given for the comfort and instruction of the church. Chapter 12, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head, a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain, to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength. And the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time, from the face of the serpent." And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, 
and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here we have this very highly symbolic vision that is given to John after the seventh trumpet and before the pouring out of the final vials of God's wrath. What we are given here is an overview of the spiritual warfare that marks history. It is a warfare, we are told here, between the woman and her seed and the dragon. And as we have pointed out in our earlier studies, we go back for the foundation of this to Genesis chapter 3. When the tempter, Satan, the serpent, came and led Eve into sin, which Adam then followed in himself and brought judgment and death to this earth, man lost his dominion, he surrendered it to Satan. But in the midst of the darkness of that hour and that moment of judgment, God had a word of judgment for the serpent who had deceived the woman and a word of hope for the man and the woman. And that was this, that there would be enmity between the woman and the serpent. Enmity, warfare, conflict. And that conflict is what is being spoken of in this passage here as it is recorded for us throughout the Old Testament. But the focus of that enmity and that conflict that this particular section is dealing with is that period of time from the birth of Christ to the foundation of the church in the New Testament era and the warfare that took place and that culminated then in the great central events of history. So there would be this conflict. But it also said in that word of God in Genesis that the seed of the woman, the serpent would bruise his heel in that conflict, but the seed of the woman would bruise his head. In other words, the woman is the church. The seed is what comes from the church, and that is the Redeemer himself, Jesus Christ, And the serpent would have warfare against the woman throughout history. The Old Testament records that, always seeking to destroy the woman and her seed. But God cannot be defeated. His purposes come to pass. And in the time of the first century A.D., the beginning of the first century, the woman brings forth the child of the name of Jesus. And now the battle is really brought to its head. And that's what this chapter is about, that, that battle that took place and how the, the serpent sought to destroy the woman. Failing in that, he sought to devour her child as soon as it was born. And yet God's purposes could not be frustrated. The child, the man-child Jesus prevailed. He fulfilled the will of God in the redemption of, of his people through the cross. And then he was caught up to the throne of God where he now sits ruling and reigning. That's the first century. This is the focus of this chapter, the first century aspect of this great battle of the ages. And it was the definitive battle. Not the last battle, but the definitive one. Oscar Kuhlman gave the interesting analogy concerning how history in this battle works itself out. He used the analogy of the uh, Second World War 
and how that the war of the Allies against the Axis powers had been going on. But the definitive battle of that whole time was the invasion of Europe, D-Day. And once that battle was won, the war had been decided, though it wasn't over yet. Many battles remained, but it was decisive. It was the decisive battle of history for that particular war. And so was the cross in the first century battle and the founding of the church. It was decisive. D-Day in biblical history, as it were, using that as only an illustration for D-Day pales in comparison with this great battle. But that battle was won. It was a great and uh, mighty and intense battle. And this is what that vision is about. And that's what we explain it. We need to look into the first century. We need to look at the birth of Christ, the beginning of Christ's ministry, all the opposition that he faced from uh, the devil and his messengers, his angels, the Pharisees, the scribes, and so forth, and how he came through victorious, gave his life on the cross, was raised the third day, ascended to the Father, and then the battle shifted. Satan could no longer inflict defeat or pain upon Christ, but the church was still on earth, not yet glorified as Christ was. And he turned all of his wrath and all of his anger and all of his venom against the church, seeking to destroy the church. Because Satan is a deceived being. We give him far too much credit of understanding things like we do. He does not understand things like we do. He is blinded by his hatred. He is blinded by his pride. And he still believes that in the end he can snatch victory out of defeat. Okay, Christ beat me, but I'm going to crush his church. I'm going to destroy the gospel on earth. And so his victory will become hollow. And I will still have power on earth because I will crush the church. And then so when Christ ascended and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, we have the church going forth in fulfillment of the Great Commission. And Satan's goal was to destroy the infant church, that the Great Commission would fall flat on its face, and this whole thing called the church would be a failure, and in the end he would yet triumph. There was a great war that was fought in that first century from Pentecost to the definitive founding of the church, which historically in the book of Revelation is given at A.D. 70. It was marked by the overthrow of Judaism and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, but it was also marking the time that the church had been triumphant and the gospel had gone into the nations, the New Testament had been written, the churches were founded, and Satan had lost. That's what this chapter is about, that battle. And so as we look at all of this symbolism and sometimes weird uh, creatures and all these descriptions that make, make us think, What is going on here? It is my belief that that is exactly what's going on here. We have a symbolic depiction of that great spiritual war of the first century, beginning with Christ's ministry, continuing on through the founding of the church, and finding its culmination in the time of A.D. 70 when the church had won. And the church has been here ever since. It was founded then. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation, and now we are just involved in working on the superstructure. But in saying all this, this does not mean this passage has nothing to say to us. It has everything to say to us. 
it, it teaches us the theology of this battle because the battle is still going on. Satan still thinks he can snatch victory from defeat. He still thinks that if he can overthrow the church, he will claim the victory. And so his venom and his hatred against God's people is just as strong and keen today as it was in the first century. He's still doing the things against the church that he did then to the church today. He still hates us. He still understands that the real battle of history is not in politics. It's not in the kingdoms rising and falling and the, the military battles of the earth. The real struggle of history is this spiritual war between the dragon and the woman. Between the dragon and the church. And so as we read this chapter and we see these things, we draw from it the, the basic understanding of the war of the ages. And it's a spiritual war. And we're right in the middle of it. And we're still ourselves contending today against the dragon and his angels. So let's go into the passage now and we'll, we'll survey the content uh, to bring, I, my purpose is to, to bring our study of this chapter to a close so we can move on to its parallel text that develops it further in chapter 13. Last week we saw in verse 7 there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And we defined last week that Michael, the name there means who is like God, is a reference to Christ. And that Christ's angels are his messengers. We, we took a lot of time last week to show that this word angels that we translate in English. Actually, we're not translating it. The Greek word is angelos. We're just transliterating it. What, how do we translate the meaning of angel into English? Because all we're doing when we call it an angel, we're just transferring the, the Greek letters into English letters. The meaning of it into English is a messenger, an envoy, an ambassador sent with a message. And so what this is referring to is Christ and his messengers. Ye are my witnesses. He's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. First and foremost are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers, but the whole body of Christ, they're Christ's messengers. And we saw how this word was applied in the New Testament to John's disciples. They were called angels when they came as envoys of John to ask Christ. We saw the word actually was used directly of John the Baptist. I will send my messenger before you. It's the Greek word angel. We saw that Paul was called an angel of God. We saw that Jesus' disciples who went before him in the Samaritan village were called angels. In other words, messengers, envoys, preparing the way. And so if this is the case, the dragon and his angels refer to false apostles, false teachers. It refers to the messengers of Satan who are spreading his lies throughout the world. And so the battles between truth and error, the messengers of Christ and the messengers of Satan. And that battle is just as real today as it was then. The envoys of the devil are men and women who are taking the doctrines of demons, as Paul called them, and seeking to, to spew them forth and deceive the world. The church's call is to take the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, and the word of God that he has given to us, and to do battle on that field of truth versus error by being messengers of Christ and speaking the truth. And so this is the battle that we are in. Christ, our Lord, 
we his messengers, and the dragon, Satan, the devil, and his messengers. Now, I'm sorry to say and sorry to report that it seems to me at this day and age, the messengers of the evil one are doing a far better job than we are. The church is silent. The church is cowed. The church is fearful. And the devil and his angels, that is, his messengers, are having a field day. And the church is silent. In fact, it's so bad that the church is picking up the message of these false teachers and apostles and preaching it from their own pulpits. So let us learn and be admonished by the chapter here. But picking up now this vision. And this, the vision here is the, the battle that took place in the first century. When Christ sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, after he had given the disciples the Great Commission, and they're going forth as his messengers to plant the church in the world, Satan is doing everything in his power to stop that planting. Every step of the way, he opposed Peter, James, John, Paul, and so on. And, but there was a great war that took place in the first century. But what happened, it says here, is that the devil... The dragon and his messengers, his false prophets, his false teachers. And by the way, his main angels in that period were the Pharisees and the scribes and the false prophets of Judaism. They fought the church every step of the way. They fought the gospel. They fought it outright and then they sought to infiltrate it through, through um, the Judaistic perversion of the gospel. It says, yeah, Christ is the Messiah, but unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Unless you become a member of Judaism, you can't be saved. And so he tried every method he could, but he prevailed not, verse 8. Neither was there found any more place for them in heaven. So who won the battle of the first century? What does this tell us? The church did. Christ and his people won the battle. The church was founded. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As Christ said, They won the battle of the first century. The church's foundation was set. The whole New Testament had been written. The word of God that cannot ever pass away came through the church, through the apostles, through the woman's ministry. That is the true church's ministry. And Satan couldn't stop it. He couldn't stop the book of Romans. He couldn't stop Luke. Gospel. He couldn't stop Peter's epistles. He couldn't stop any of it. He was helpless, though he was raging against it. He tried to kill Peter. He tried to kill Paul. Paul was stoned to death, for example, in his first missionary journey. But it said he was basically stoned to death. It's a little bit of uncertainty in the passage, but they left him there dead. But he walked, got up, walked back into the city. Satan couldn't prevail. There was the great battle. So what happened? There was no found place anymore in heaven. And the great dragon, verse 9, was cast out. What does this mean? If you remember, I've defined heaven in this particular passage as the place wherein the destiny of nations is set, where the control of the earth resides. And the metaphor is that we have in the atmospheric heaven, in the starry heaven, the powers that pretty much dictate life on earth. Night and day, cold and heat, uh, rain and drought, the tides of the earth, the seasons of the earth, all the heaven controls it. That's the image. And so when he is thrown out here of heaven, it means Satan lost his dominion over the earth. 
with the coming of Christ and the victory of the church. It doesn't mean that Satan's not active today. He is very active today. But he's active as someone who lost dominion. You see, before the first century, Satan basically had a free hand in the world. There was only one nation that God was specifically working with and preparing as the instrument of his son, and that was Israel. Satan did not have the control there, though he fought against them, and he had a lot of successes against them, but he could not deny the woman in preparing the way for and then ultimately being this, the source of bringing Christ into the world. But, be, but otherwise, as Paul says in some of his preaching, uh, God left the nations in darkness. The only light they had was the light of creation and the testimony of creation. And Satan was the god of this world. And you would go into any nation at that time prior to the coming of Christ. They had their false priests and religions and child sacrifice and all kinds of abominations. And those lands were in total darkness. Total. And Satan was in heaven and he was in charge. But I mean heaven here. I mean in the imagery of heaven, he had the dominion over the earth. In fact, he was so bold in his dominion that one of his temptations to Christ, when he tempted him, at the beginning of his ministries, he took him on a high mountain. He said, here's all the kingdoms and all the glory of the world. I'll give it to you if you'll worship me. Jesus didn't come back and say, no, you don't, even, you don't have it. How can you give it to me? He accepted Satan's premise at that point. But he said, no, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and only him shalt thou serve. And so Satan was the God of this world, but he is no longer. Oh, men still... Uh, want to make him their God, but he's been cast down. Who's been put in his place? Jesus Christ has been raised to the throne of God and given authority over all the nations. This is the basis of the Great Commission. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Satan was cast out. He is no longer in charge. And how was he cast out? He was cast out through the ministry of Christ and through the preaching of the apostles and the preaching of the church. Look at Luke 10. The first phase of his casting out, the definitive work of Christ, but it was also the time of preparing the apostles who would finish that work in the first century and found Christ's church. Christ is the head, but he needs a body. And the body had to be put in place. And that was the work of the church. And again, Satan's thought was, well, I, I couldn't get the head. Well, I won't let the body be formed. I will destroy it. But Jesus here, this is a very important cross-reference of this casting out. We have Christ in his ministry preparing his disciples for the great work that they will do after his resurrection. But the first phase of it is here. And he ordains in this, at this context 70 disciples to go out and to preach. And verse 17 says of chapter 10, And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Demonic powers, satanic powers, the devil and his uh, agents. They were subject to the powers 
of these men through Christ's name. And look what Jesus then says. And he said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. This is not the original fall of the devil back in uh, primeval times. This is the fall of Satan from his position of deceiver of the nations. His power is being broke by the preaching of the gospel of the disciples of Christ. And he says, I saw Satan fall from his position of dominance. Darkness was being pushed back. The light was shining and he fell. This is the parallel to our passage here when it says that uh, there was found no place anymore in heaven and he was cast out of his place of dominance. Again, in the, in the Luke passage, Behold, I give, you, give unto you power to tread upon on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. There it is, the power to get the victory. He's giving them, Michael and his angels, doing battle against the devil and his angels. And who wins? Christ also spoke about this. In John 12, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now? Now what? It is crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Those go together. That's the threefold cord that dare not you break. Never speak of the cross without the empty tomb and the resurrection. And never speak of the resurrection without the ascension. They all go together. And so when he says now, he means through my death, resurrection, and ascension, the prince of this world will be cast out. Cast out from his position of dominance. The position he, is, he assumed when he led mankind into sin and the position that man could not himself overcome and have been under Satan's power ever since, that is now broken, is what Jesus is saying through his work upon the cross. Again, I emphasize Satan is still very active. And our, and our vision of chapter 12 shows us that. He loses, does he quit? No, he goes out angrier than ever. To attack the church. He's still very active, but his dominance has been put to an end. He has been cast out of heaven, which is symbolic of the place of control. But he still roams the earth. He still seeks to steal, to kill, and destroy. Where and when he can. And the very fact that he is so successful in that shows the utter... uh, Corruption of mankind and the failure of the church to do its work. But yes, he is active. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Yes, he no longer has dominance over the world. He no longer can keep the world in darkness because the truth has come, the Holy Spirit has come, but he's still active and we still must resist him. He still seeks to devour and we must stand against him. 
Now, in this vision now, we have further revelation concerning this dragon. The dragon, is, we're told, is that old serpent. Old in the sense of that ancient serpent that first appeared in Genesis chapter 3. And as a serpent, he's what? The tempter. Satan is the tempter. That's how he gets control over us. He tempts us to sin and we fall to his, his dece- deceptions and temptations and we fall into sin. But he is the serpent, meaning he is the tempter. And he's still at work. But Christ has broken his power. And if we stand in Christ's power, his temptations will fail. But he's also called the devil. Now the word uh, devil here indicates a slanderer. A slanderer. And it actually comes from a root word that means to set at variance. To make a quarrel between people. And so what this means is he's a false accuser. He's a slanderer. He's a backbiter because his goal is always to create conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the children of God. Cursed are those who who make conflicts for they shall be called the children of the devil because that's what he does. He makes conflict. And how does he raise conflict? Well, there's two people who are getting along really well together, but then he comes and whispers in the ear of someone to go and slander that person. Bring a false report against that person. Accuse that person of something or something, and then all of a sudden the harmony is broken, the battle entails. You have a church in harmony, and the people are getting along well together, but Satan comes in and he raises slander against certain ones. Lies and accusations against certain ones. And of course, his, one of his favorite places, he knows where to go, it's the elders and deacons. He brings accusations against them. And people who were at one time at peace with one another, at peace with their ministers, all of a sudden are questioning their ministers. They're starting to pull up sides and conflict comes. That's what the devil does. He is the source of conflict and division because he's a slanderer. Thirdly, he's called Satan, meaning adversary. He is our enemy. So he's our tempter, he's the one that slanders us, and he is the one who is our enemy. And in that capacity over mankind, as a tempter, slanderer, and adversary, he deceives the whole world. That's what he's been able to accomplish. The word deceive here means to lead astray. To lead astray from what? From God. From truth from goodness, from sanity, from righteousness. He's always leading people away from that. That's what his deceptions do. He leads us from the truth to believe a lie. And that's what he was about. That describes him pre-Christian era. Here's how Paul put it in Acts 14. Speaking to the heathen, Sirs, why do you do these things? What things? Worshiping idols. And here they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. Sacrifice animals to him and fall down and worship him. Paul says, we're also men of like passions with you and preach unto you. You should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. In times past. But the point Paul is, as he goes out as a missionary for Christ, those times are past. Now is the day of light. Why are you still doing this? We came to show you 
the truth. But this word says, who in times past suffered, means literally let things be as they were. Before the Christian era, before the Great Commission era, which had to have the gospel as its foundation, before that came, God let things stand in the world as they were. And what were those things? Utter darkness, satanic deception, ruled unchallenged, but no more. That's the message of chapter 12. Here's another one, Acts 17. Again, Paul speaking, not to heathen, but to philosophers, humanistic philosophers in Athens. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance, God winked at. What ignorance? The ignorance of idolatry, the ignorance of human philosophy. God looked at it and he despised it. He slighted it in the sense that he did nothing about it. But now, Paul says, now, this is the now of Revelation 12. But now, Satan's been dethroned. Christ has been enthroned. But now, God is bringing the light to the whole world. So now he commands all men everywhere to repent. That's what's taking place. And Michael and his angels are going out proclaiming it. The devil and his messengers are fighting against it. And who wins in the first century? Christ. You see, the Great Commission means that the whole Gentile world is now made the area of God's love and concern. He would then and today have all men repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, the reign of darkness among the nations is at an end. Because Christ reigns over the nations. And if there's darkness among the nations, it's because we as the church fail to take the light to that. By the way, this verse here, we'll come back to this importantly when we get to Revelation 20, verse 3. And we have that statement where Satan is bound, put in the, into the abyss for a thousand years. All kinds of uh, debate and sometimes very fanciful understandings of what that means. But it's, he will be bound what? That he will deceive the nations no more. It's not saying anything different in chapter 20, verse 3 than it is here. He can no longer deceive the nations. He has been bound by the victory of Christ. Now, this vision is interpreted for us that we've seen here, the battle that we've seen here, the victory that is declared because he was cast out into the earth. His angels, his messengers were cast out with him. Again, this is symbolic, meaning they fell from their position of power. Now we have a great hymn of praise that interprets the vision. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. The voice in heaven, which is actually a voice singular, but it's a voice of a combined host. Because notice, when the voice speaks, it says, verse 10, 
It's the kingdom of our God. Uh, Verse 10, the accuser of our brethren. Accuse them before our God day and night. So so this is is a, a one voice in the sense of like when we just recited that creed. It was one voice speaking, but it was many voices joining together to make that one confession. But now is come. Uh, now what? Now is come four things. But the now that's being spoken of here is the victory of the apostolic period. The foundations of the church are complete. There are churches throughout all the inhabitable world of the Roman Empire. The New Testament scripture has been written and Satan's counterattack against the apostolic church has failed. He lost. And so here's the hymn of praise. Now, with the overthrow of the deceiver, with the foundation of of the church to be the, the light of Christ in the world, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, Now that that has happened, salvation and strength has come. Come to who? All nations. Now this now, this period of time, is calculated in Revelation, and if you put Scripture with Scripture, in the period between Pentecost and A.D. 70. And by that time, and remember, this book was written right before the the beginning of the Jewish-Roman War and the fall of Jerusalem and the Temple. This is looking forward to that moment that is right about to come to pass. The time is at hand. We're looking at it in a visional sense here of that it has come now. The victory is won. Salvation has come. With the completion and the founding of the New Testament church, salvation has come to the world. By the way, in the original, it's the salvation, the strength. It's the salvation of the gospel. Strength here refers to power. With the founding of the New Testament church, it means that the power of God is now set free in the world to set us free from Satan and his power. Now we can have a new life. The power of sin can be broken over our lives, our families, our communities, and our nations. The power is there. If it's not happening, it's not because the power is not available. It's because we're not availing ourselves. Furthermore, the kingdom of our God is now. With the completion of the founding of the church, that meant the kingdom of God, redemptive, messianic kingdom of God is now here. It's been established. And all are being invited to join it by faith. Remember Christ's ministry? What was his very first message that he preached? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This vision is telling us the kingdom of heaven is now. No longer at hand. It's here. The church is here. The the kingdom of Christ is here. Also, the power of Christ is now. In other words, with the completion of the founding of the church, in the, in the first century, it means that Christ's authority has now been manifested exactly as he said it would. Here's what he said in the Great Commission. 
Remember, here's the, the power of Christ. Here's what he said in his commission. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That power that was promised to this little group, huddled, fearful group of disciples, though their fears were now alleviated by the resurrection and those, those things, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, and they didn't know what was going to happen, but Christ had commissioned them to take the gospel to the whole world, to all the nations, and he said, my power will be with you because it's been given to me. That power that was given to Christ has now been manifested by 70 AD in the establishment of the church. The power of Christ in the Great Commission is recorded through the book of Acts. The power of Christ in the Great Commission is seen in the epistles of the New Testament. And here in Revelation, it's declared to have happened and come to pass exactly as Christ said. By the way, the salvation, the strength, the kingdom of God, the power of Christ, which were firmly manifested and brought into being in the first century are certainly here today. All of these things, they're ours, if we will avail ourselves of it. There is salvation for that lost soul that you're burdened for. There's salvation for that uh, family that's being um, engrossed and destroyed through sin. There's salvation for nations that are destroying one another and killing one another. It's in Christ. If we'll avail ourselves of it, if we'll preach it, if we'll believe it. There's strength now for you to be set free from the bondage of sin and terrible habits. There's strength to become a new creature in Christ. It's here. And the kingdom of God is here. And the power of Christ's great commission is here. Nothing's changed. This is our victory chapter. This is our victory lap. This is the statement here of what is now. And if it was now by AD 70, believe me, it's been now ever since. This is our situation. Furthermore, he says, the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Remember, we saw that the old serpent, the devil and Satan were the, were the dragon. And we saw that devil means a slanderer, an accuser. Well, this accuser of our brethren has been cast down. Cast down in the same way we saw in verses 8 and 9. He's lost his um, dominion. And therefore, his accusations have been greatly weakened. In fact, with Christians, the accusations can get nowhere. But he's still, he's still at work accusing, but he's no longer in control. And of course, to accuse means to charge somebody with some kind of wrongdoing. So this is what Satan does. He's constantly accusing people. He accused them before our God day and night. Now, some think this means he was actually in the very presence of God and that he was standing before God and making these accusations, but he's not making them anymore. No, that's not what the passage is saying here. Some say, well, isn't that like in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, when uh, Satan appears before God and accuses Job? Well, no, I do not think so. 
not sure what to make of the Job passage, but that Satan would have access, this, this wicked, rebellious being would have access to the very presence of a holy God in his throne room to accuse believers? I don't think so. At least it's not what it means in this context. In fact, this word before is the translation of a Greek preposition. 24 times in the New Testament, it's translated in this fashion, in the sight of. In the sight of. Meaning simply this. Satan's brazen activity of accusing the disciples of Jesus of all kinds of sins and crimes, he did with a high hand in the very sight of God, but none of it was successful. And so it says he accused them in the sight of God day and night. The God who was the redeemer of the brethren, the God who had forgiven them. That's why it's spoken of by Paul in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God that justifies. What that means is who will bring a charge against God's elect? A lot of people will. But whose charges can stick? None of them. The victory is ours. By the way, one of Satan's greatest um, tools against Christians is to accuse you before God. You're a lousy Christian. You, 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 you don't serve God like you should. And he's constantly seeking to tear us down by his accusations. And you know what stings? Because often the accusations are true. But what do we do with those accusations? Before Christ came, there was nothing we could do except hang our heads in shame. Now we can confess him and we can ask our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, to intercede for us and they'll be forgiven. And we'll go forth and say, Satan has been taken care of. Get out of here. Your accusations have been exploded by the good grace of God. But accuse, accuse. This is how Satan has fought his battle against the church. The battle that we're looking at here. This is how he worked. Look at the Gospels. What were the Pharisees and scribes doing constantly to Jesus to bring him down? Almost always it was accusations. They accuse him of this. They accuse him of that. You cast out demons by the devil himself. Talk about accusations. Listen to these words, Matthew 12. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, that is Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? Chapter 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. There's their accusation. In his very trial, the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What's that? It's an accusation. Further, what further need have we of witnesses? Behold, you've heard his blasphemy. In other words, Christ went to death by means of an accusation. Verse 20, chapter 27, 12, when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Accused, that is, before Pilate. Then it says this in Luke. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying he himself is Christ a king. 
This is the accusations that's being spoken of in chapter 12 here. This is before, in the sight of God, in the ears of men, that Jesus was constantly being accused so that he would be defeated by those accusations. But, But was he defeated? No, because none of them were true. This is the same thing in the church. This is Satan used the same accusational method with the church. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. Acts 6, 12 to 13. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man seeth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. That's spoken of Stephen. How did they try to stop the church? Accusations. Accusations. Acts 16, 19 to 21. And when her masters saw that their hope of gain was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, drew them in the marketplace under the rulers, and brought them to the magistrates, saying, or accusing them is the idea, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. They accused them. This was, the, this was the plan. Accusation. Didn't work with Christ? Well, 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 we'll get the church that way. Accuse, accuse, accuse of everything you could imagine. You know, the, the church in the Roman Empire was accused. Christians were accused of incredible enormities. They were accused of being cannibals, drinking blood. That was you know, the idea of the Lord's Supper. This is my blood. They thought they were drinking blood. They were accused of incest. They were accused of disloyalty. They were accused of treason. They were accused and accused and accused. That's how Satan attacked the church. And that's what he's doing today. Just keep your ears open. We're always being accused of something as being true. Intolerant, unloving. Uh, this, that. You know, it's just the way it is. If we, if we say, Christ is the king of America. Oh, you're a white nationalist. And, it, and of course, that means something to perverted minds. It's bad. And so we're, we're accused, we're accused, we're accused. But the point of this passage is, not, since none of it is true, we stand. Christ is our Savior. The devil's most effective strategy is false accusations against Christianity and Christians. Just, I was thinking about this week and looking at the terrible things that were said about Christians in various news reports and insinuations about how terrible of a people we are. He's still at it. He's still at it. And you know what? Those accusations will bring the church down if we believe them. If we believe to say that there is no other name given under heaven whereby man must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ, if we're accused of being bigots, if we're, being, if we're accused of, of attacking all of the religions of the world and all of this, and we believe those accusations are true, then we'll stop saying Christ is the only way. So we, we must realize this is how the devil would silence us by accusations. But how do we put off those accusations and say, we're speaking the truth in Christ. We lie not. We don't hate men. We love mankind. In standing against the, the, the sins of um, our culture and the immoralities and condemning those immoralities, it's not because we hate men. It's because we love God and the men who are being consumed by those sins. 
This is subtle, but this is how we stand. We now have the truth of God and we do not allow the accusations of the, of the brethren, of Satan, of us and our brethren to bring us down. And he's doing it constantly, day and night. So keep your ears open to that and see this is his tactic. And accuse, accuse, accuse. A successful ministers, successful Christians in business or whatever area, what, what you're going to hear are accusations against them, which are slanders, lies, and false witnesses, because that's how he works, to bring people down. Now, verse 11 tells us how we overcome the, Satan in all of his ways. We do it through the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and that we love not our lives unto death. That's how they did it in the first century. That's how we'll do it today. As Satan is still about accusing. But the good news is that accuser isn't in control anymore. The false accuser has been cast down. And the one who knows us really, Jesus Christ, is the judge, not Satan. So how do we overcome by the way, the, the overcoming here is speaking about the brethren. And this takes us back to verse 7 and the battle between Michael and his angels. This is further proof that angels there means messengers or servants of Christ. For in the battle that's depicted in verse 7, we see how the angels or the messengers, the believers of Christ, overcome the devil and his dragons. I mean, excuse me, his angels. It's the blood of the Lamb. That is, we rest in the finished work of Christ. We stand in the blood of the Lamb that washed away our sins, that has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and the hope of eternal life. We live our lives and we fight our battles on the foundation of the blood of Christ and no other foundation. You try to fight this battle, this spiritual battle, on your own goodness, of your own wisdom, of your own righteousness, you'll be swept away in a moment. But if you stand upon the gospel, you'll overcome. Secondly, the word of their testimony. This means the word of testimony that they bore concerning Christ. It's their witness. They overcame in this battle against false witnesses by speaking the truth. We don't overcome by being silent. We overcome by speaking the truth. And that's how the devil is defeated. When the church speaks the word of testimony that's been given to them concerning Christ. When they speak that testimony, when they testify of the gospel. That's how we overcome falsehood. And they love not their lives unto death. To love one's life is to do the things that will serve the comforts and purposes of that life. And so if you loved your life and you were said, deny Christ or die, you would deny Christ because you loved your life. What this means is they were willing to die for their testimony. They didn't love their lives, even to the point of giving their lives up. That's what it means. And we see that in the story of the martyrs throughout church history. There were many martyrs in the first century who were called upon to deny Christ, to attack the doctrine of the church, to substantiate the false accusations, and they refused. And they said, unless you change your mind, you will die. And they said, then so be it. In other words, death 
to them was not as important. Excuse me, life to them was not as important as faithfulness to Christ, and they're willing to die for their faith. And a church that's not willing to die for its faith will not be willing to live for its faith either. So I really want to live for Christ. Are you willing to die for Christ? But here's, by the way, you say, yeah, I am, but I don't know if I could. Don't worry. You don't have the grace right now to be a martyr. But if you were called to that position, you'd get the grace. So don't despair. I don't know that I could be faithful to death. Well, at the moment, you couldn't. But in the moment you're called to do it, God will give you the grace to do it. He'll give you the strength to do it. You see, it's this willingness to die for the faith that has been the, uh, the great source of power to the church and the great defeat to the devil. He holds the fear of death as a power over other people, his followers, and he always gets them in the end to, with that fear. Fear, by the way, Satan uses fear to control. And when you look at our culture and you see what's being done out there, they're using fear, 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 fear to control us. We know that's not from God. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sane mind. If the spirit of fear is being used, it's because they are angels of the devil. They are messengers of Satan seeking to lead us. But the church was faithful. You can't help but quote the famous words of Tertullian, the church father, who in the midst of the great persecutions of the early church in the early centuries said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because martyrs are the testimony to all of us that we must not love our lives even though it may cost us our lives. We are to love Christ. Verse 12 Speaks of the rejoicing that's to take place in heaven because of this. And the woe that's stated upon the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. And I believe in this context, it's talking about the land of Palestine and its sea of Galilee. You see, the church having conquered, the devil is now down to his last moments. He knows his time is short. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knows that his time is but short. He still thinks that he can pull this thing out. Time is running out, but he comes down to the land in great, great wrath. To do what? To destroy the Palestinian church. And when the dragon saw that he was cast out, now we get back to the narrative of the vision. He was cast out. He lost his position of dominion. The church had been founded in the earth. He came down with great anger to persecute the woman who had brought forth the child. And the woman who brought forth the child in this vision is the Messianic community of Israel. He he is cast down and he comes to the land of Palestine And he goes against the Palestinian church from which Christ came and from which the church grew. It was from that church 
the Palestinian church, the apostles and prophets went forth into the land. It was that woman, the Palestinian church, that was given the Great Commission. And he is incensed with anger. And his desire here at this point, at the late stage of the game, is uh, he's got to, I've got to destroy this woman. I've got to destroy this woman that brought forth the child. I've got to destroy this woman who has sent forth its angels and messengers to the four corners of the earth. I must destroy the Palestinian church. That's what he thinks. And that's what he fails to do. Because what we have described here in the vision is how God preserved the Palestinian church during this last gasp of Satan to destroy the woman. What was that last gasp? It was the Jewish-Roman War. He saw, we know that God was sending the Romans as the instruments of his judgment. Satan saw, yes, this is my time. I will inspire these Romans to slaughter every Palestinian Christian that there is. His thought was good. The Romans aren't going to ask as they come into the land, are you a Judaistic Jew or are you a Christian Jew? The Romans at this point hated the Jews and they didn't stop to ask what side you were on. They slaughtered indiscriminately and so Satan's plan was, okay, I'll get him this time. In fact, I'll, I'll use this against God. He's sending the Romans to judge the Jews. I'm going to use those very Romans to destroy his church. But he failed. And we have a very uh, picture of this. And it's all symbolism and how the Lord instructed and guided the Palestinian church to get out of Judea and to get out of Jerusalem before the, the flood of the war swept over the land. The flood here is simply a picture of the wicked acting to destroy. There's many Old Testament parallels to that. This woman was carried away safely. The earth, the land itself, helped the woman and in the picture of it here, swallowed up that flood of war that the dragon was seeking to use to destroy the church. Now there's something very interesting here about this. We have a historical record of what took place at this time. You know, Jesus had warned the church in the Olivet Discourse when they, they saw the Roman armies come. They should know the time of judgment arrived and to get out of the land. Get out of Jerusalem and get out of Judea. History records for us that the Jewish Christians did exactly that and they fled Jerusalem and they fled Judea. Testimony of this is given to us by the church historian Eusebius who wrote in the 4th century. He says, quote, the whole body... However, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by a divine revelation given to men of approved piety, there before the war, that is the Jewish-Roman war, removed from the city and dwelt at a certain town beyond Jordan called Pella. Here those that believed in Christ, having removed from the city of Jerusalem, as if holy men had entirely abandoned the royal city itself, and the whole land of Judea, The divine justice for their crimes, that is the Jews, against Christ and his apostles finally overtook them, totally destroying the whole generation of this evildoers from the earth. Now that was in a a section where he was describing 
the Jewish-Roman war and how that was used as vengeance of God upon the Jews for crucifying Christ. But in the middle of this, he tells us that the church, being warned of God, fled Jerusalem and Judea before the war, descended upon them, and they were spared. By the way, this city of Pella, its location is very interesting. You know where it's located near? In fact, in the environs of Pella, which, let me see, where is Pella? Okay, let me just tell you where it is. It's the city of Decapolis, which was two and a half miles east of the Jordan River, 18 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, and about 52 miles northeast of Jerusalem. In other words, it was not in Judea. It was in a, it was in a, a Greek region. But you know where it was located near? When flowing right near it, within a few miles, the brook Cherith. You ever hear of the brook Cherith? Anybody? Can you give me the answer? Where? Elijah. Elijah. When Elijah fled from the wrath of Jezebel and Ahab, God prepared a place for him by the brook Cherith. And he said, I'll feed you there. And he sent ravens and fed him, and he drank from the brook, and he was fed the food from that. It's very interesting, because that becomes a picture here of God protecting Elijah from the wrath of, of the devil, as expressed by Jezebel and Ahab. Here he sends his church in this, at this period of the war in Jerusalem and against Judea to the very same area, the brook Cherith. And it says he's, he's going to feed him there. Remember, we saw that, by the way, in verse uh, 6 which was preparation for these last verses we're looking at. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared of God that they should feed her there 3,203 score days. Here we're told essentially the same thing. Time, time, and a half time. The woman goes there and she is fed. By the way, what's that time frame? We saw that time frame in chapter 11. And we saw that the time frame that is being spoken of there, it refers to three and a half years, which was the course of the Jewish-Roman war from the invasion of Vespasian to the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, for the whole period of the war, the Jewish church, true believers, were protected because they were warned of God, led of God. They fled Judea and Jerusalem and went to this region of Pella near the brook Cherith, and there God fed them. Satan failed to destroy them by the Romans because God got them to a place of safety and he would not allow the devil to destroy them. And so in conclusion, we have here in chapter 12, I'm going to pick up verse 17 as a prelude to chapter 13. As we come here to this vision of chapter 12, remember then what we have here is a sweeping panorama of the history of the war between the woman and the dragon, between the true church and Satan. It began in Genesis 3, it extends through the entire Old Testament. Here in this particular passage, we see how that war reached its center point in the incarnation of Christ and the founding of the New Testament church. The focus of this vision then, remember, is that period of time from the birth of Christ to the establishment of the church. The great battle of the first century that was won by Christ and his people. And this vision, therefore, shows the victory of Christ is sure and we stand in it today. 
This vision also explains for us what or who is behind the persecution of the church then and today. It is Satan. It is the devil. And his envoys, his messengers, who come and persecute the church. Persecution arises in this spiritual war, which is still ongoing because, as I said, Satan still thinks and is deceived anger and pride that he can still pull this thing out if he can destroy you and I, if he can destroy the church. In the end, he can still claim the victory, so he's still at it. But this vision shows us that he is already defeated. Christ and the church are victorious, and we stand in that victory. And the time of history in which we live is different than the history of the first century world, yes, but the truth, the doctrine, the principles, the theology revealed in this vision are exactly the same. Right now as I speak to you, the man-child is on his throne. Right now as I speak to you, Satan has been cast down from his dominance over the earth. Right now as I speak to you, the church is the messenger of Christ to defeat the lies and deception of the devil and his messengers. Right now as I speak, the devil hates the church. He hates Christians and he turns all his rage and his frustrations against us with his accusations and his persecution. The true conflict of history, therefore, is between Christ and his people and Satan and his followers. We, we are in a spiritual war. That war rages today, but the outcome is not in doubt because it was sealed in the first century. God has a purpose for us in our time in history. He's still building his church. He's still calling in his elect. He's still extending his mercy to the nations. As each generation is born, each generation needs to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let us remember in conclusion of this chapter, the victory is ours through him that loved us. The victory has been won and we stand in it and we are charged to go forth in that victory and overcome the devil in our day and his accusations and his persecutions by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and not to love our lives, even unto the death. Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing chapter that gives us the background to history and what has taken place and what is taking place. Inspire us, O God, in the victory in Christ. Through this we pray. Amen.